How's it going? This is Captain Cam with Blackbird Guide Services, and I will be your host for today's episode of Eastern Current. And today, our guest is Captain Zach of Southern Style Charters out of Hilton Head, South Carolina. And Zach is an upcoming guide in that area. He is a really good fly fisherman. He's a really good fly tire. Uh, and we're going to talk about flood tides. We're going to talk about cobia fishing in his area and catching them on the fly. And uh, he might have a story or two about catching monster snook in, in lakes in South Carolina, which is mind-blowing. Uh, but stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy. We're excited to announce the Eastern Current Online Angler Series that will be kicking off this spring with a three-tournament artificial-only redfish series. You can fish all three tournaments in the series or just one. The tournaments will be hosted through the iAngler app and you can participate from any state. The first tournament will be March 24th and 25th with an online captain's meeting the night before hosted through our Facebook page. The redfish tournament will consist of your longest three redfish per day under 32 inches. This is just the start to our online angler series and we're excited to bring you many more tournaments for redfish, speckled trout, flounder, and more. If you're interested in fishing the Spring Redfish Trail, be sure to stay tuned as we will be bringing you registration information next week, April 14th, as well as a link to the full list of tournament rules and regulations. Feel free to reach out to us on Instagram as well, and if you have any questions between now and then, we're here to answer them. If I'm fishing a jig, you can bet it's going to be an iStrike Texas Eye. Dave and Ralph at iStrike have built the most versatile and durable lineup of jigs in the saltwater industry. Whether you need a finesse presentation on spooky wintertime redfish, or you need to hop a big swim bait on deep water structure for cobia and bull redfish, iStrike has the jig for you. Be sure to check out their website and use code EC10 for up to 40% off all iStrike products and 10% off all Z-Man products. The code can only be used at iStrikeFishing.com and you can find the code and the link to their website in the podcast show notes. If you haven't already, be sure to check out Eastern Current on Patreon. There you'll be able to find our weekly Ramp Talk podcast where my guide buddies and I discuss our day-to-day fishing on the way to the boat ramp in the morning. You will also be able to find extra video content that you can't find on YouTube. If you've loved listening to the Eastern Current podcast, subscribing to our Patreon is a great way to help support the show. Captain Zach, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. We uh, this is actually our second try. We just uh, we were about five minutes in and uh, call dropped. So here we are again. So you do, you, as we're talking, you just have to act like you know this is stuff that's uh, totally new to you. Um, but yeah, so Zach just got done eating a bunch of wings. He said, and that that made me a little jealous because I hadn't eaten anything yet. Um, and we were, we were just getting into his background. So Zach, tell us about where you grew up. How did you get into fishing? So on and so forth. So I actually spent most of my life in Charleston, South Carolina, moved there at a very young age. Um, prior to that, I'd only really done bass fishing with, you know, the, the button, the push button rods, you know, nothing fancy. Um, when I was in Charleston, my parents had a boat. We would go out there, just, you know, whatever bites type thing. We had, you know, just the Walmart rods with cut mullet with wire rigs, catching 18 inch shark. 
and um, I would, you know, watch YouTube videos of people doing cooler stuff. And that's when I was like, well, I want to try something different. I want to be more productive. I heard Charleston had good fishing, but I had never experienced it just because my dad didn't have a clue about saltwater fishing in South Carolina. So I just wanted to take up something new. Mm-hmm. Um, so my parents were nice enough. They got me a kayak. It was like a $200, 250 kayak from Walmart. Just one of those sit on top yeah. uh, kayaks, one of the paddle ones. And I would take that out in the creek behind uh, my neighborhood or my dad would drive me to a kayak launch and I just started out bait fishing, um, shrimp, mud meadows, mullet, that kind of stuff, casting at docks, banks, just, you know, just trying to learn something new because it was all new to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once I got to about seventh grade, I had gotten decently good. At least I, I thought I was. Um, and I wanted to try something new. I had seen some pretty active fish. I had recognized the difference between like bait and redfish and that kind of stuff. And I was like, I want to try to like visually like see it all unfold. And so I just like looked up fly fishing. There's a fly shop in my town. Um, it was called low country fly shop. Um, and it was in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. I went there, talked to the guy who was super nice. Um, unfortunately the store is no longer there. Um, but there's still, you know, a bunch of great shops in town. Um, and then we talked about it. I ended up ordering myself a combo from, Cabela's the whitewater combo it was like an $80 eight weight combo um and just started from there um let's stand up on my kayak go around the shallow bank um I had never like I, I had a buddy that did it in middle school um but I'd never really like been out fly fishing with anybody mm-hmm. it was probably about a, it was probably about a year or two after fly fishing before I actually like went with other people that fly fish so Basically, everything that I did was all just stuff that I observed when I was on the water, just trying new things, seeing flies that people had tied on Instagram. And it was one of those things where, like, when I started fly fishing, I did it also because I wanted to tie flies and wanted to use things that worked for me. Um, And, like, I wanted to, like, get that satisfaction of I caught that fish on my fly. So there wasn't any delay in my fly tying. The second I bought a fly rod, a week later, I had an order for a vice to start fly tying as well. Um, and I had only ever bought two flies before I started tying my own flies. Um, what, what, and, sorry to interrupt you. What age were you? Is this still like around seventh grade when you were? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was, yeah, it was seventh grade when I started fly fishing. Like a week later, I bought my, my vice and started fly tying as well. Um, I actually caught my first redfish ever on fly on a fly that I tied. It wasn't even one that I bought. So my first redfish ever was on a fly that I tied myself. That's really And then. Cool from there i just upgraded i started going out every day i could after school on the weekends my parents couldn't wake me up at 10 o'clock but i was able to wake up at 4 30 on my own on a hot <laughs> summer day and you know be be in the spot when it's still dark somehow before my alarm even goes off and i'm that, up it's such an interesting thing to think about like i totally agree with you for like thinking back i mean i'm i'm 34 now so this is a long time ago but like I remember my parents vividly coming in and being like, it's time to go to school. And I'd be like, oh, God, just let me sleep like another hour. But if it's fishing, it's like you can wake me up at 3 a.m. and I'm like, I'm ready. Let's go. Yeah. And I mean, I mean that, that still happens now. Like when I know it's going to be a nice day or like if I'm, if I'm trying a whole new area or trying like new tactics, you know, I'm up and ready to go before my alarm. Um, yeah, the, but, the passion is there. Oh yeah. But getting back to that, um, and then, you know, I 
I think when I hit the age of 15, I bought myself a boat, uh, saved up my money. Uh, it, it was a 16-foot Carolina skiff, just with a 1997 Johnson on it, 25 horsepower, and then, you know, worked my way up from there to a 14.6 uh, Widgeon Bayou. And then from there, I traded up again to my now 17-foot Ranger Phantom, which I guide off of. Yeah. And one thing you had mentioned in a in a previous conversation was that you had you bought a boat before you bought a car. Yeah. I yeah, mean, I bought so when yeah, when I was 15, I was like I want to buy a boat. And my mindset behind that but before getting a car, I was like, well, everyone my age is about to get a car. Nobody my age has a boat. <laughs> People are a lot more willing to drive me to the boat ramp if they know <laughs> that they're going to be able to go on the boat with me. So it was just one of those things where I was different. People would want to drive me to the boat ramp because I've got a boat and we're about to go fishing. Yeah. You're a smart man. You're a smart man. <laughs> um, so at what point in your, you know, fishing career were you thinking that guiding is what you wanted to pursue? It wasn't until I came down here to Beaufort, um, to college, uh, after high school, I graduated, um, and then went to college down here in Beaufort, USCB. And I was on the water so much. I was learning so much. People were like reaching out to me and I wasn't even going like, Hey, do you guide? Or if not, do you know somebody else that does? And I was working as a food runner and then a server at a restaurant in Hilton Head. And I was, you know, I wasn't liking working for anybody because, you know, it was affecting my fishing. I'd go out in the morning, I'd have to leave amazing fishing to, you know, drive back home, shower, and then head to work. Mm -hmm. So it was just more of annoying than anything else. And I just like the idea of, you know, not having somebody looking over my shoulder, not somebody directing me. Yeah. Um, so that's just something I wanted to do. And, you know, I've started it. I've had a lot of ups and downs. I've learned a lot. I learned that just because I'm a great fisherman doesn't mean that I'm going to be a great guide right off the bat. Uh, definitely a huge curveball was when I took out, you know, one of my first charters. I was just, I had the expectation, you know, that they're just as good as me. They could cast 60, 70 feet, drop dimes on fish. That was not the case at all. <laughs> uh, that's very rarely the case. Yeah. That, yeah. I, I realized that really quickly. Yeah. Uh, um, <clears throat> that is something that I think some, a lot of people don't realize maybe is, you know, do, when you're new to guiding or whatever that and it's, I, I, it's probably especially bad in fly fishing when you're really used to fishing with your friends that maybe are, are really good uh, or as good as you or, you know, however, but, you know, typically they're going to be pretty decent if you're fishing with them all the time and, and you're fly fishing a lot. And, uh, and then you go to, you know, you kind of shock the system and you get someone on the boat that can maybe cast, you know, 20 feet and 20 feet, not quickly. <laughs> Not accurate. No, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, not at all. And all that stuff. Wind. It, oh, yeah, wind. I mean, it, 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 and all those things are factors. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a definitely a, a massive game of of patience. One, but also just setting expectations. Two, I think is is uh, is of a very high priority as well. Um, when like you know you can, you kind of have to you know if pe if people are getting shots, that's all you can really ask for right? As, as like a client, because you as a guide, you can put them in the right position. You can put them in front of fish and you can give them the right angle, but that's about all you can do. You know, um, 
they got to be able to see them and they got to be able to put the fly in the right spot. And I mean, one thing I've noticed in the little amount of time I've been guiding is sometimes the wording for different people makes the world of a difference, whether it's you're teaching someone how to cast, teaching someone how to look for fish, teaching someone how to take a shot at a fish. Everybody's different. And even your tone of voice, you know, you know, someone might get stressed out in a certain situation to where like, if you just calm down, relax yourself as a guide, you know, just let them know there's a fish here, you know, they might have a much better approach to that fish because your tone is different with them. And other people, it's like, just put the freaking fly right there and they do it. And it's good. It's just everybody's yeah. different. That's one, that, that's probably one of the biggest things I've learned is to like try to figure out how everybody's different. Yeah, no, that's true. You got to, you, uh, definitely have to be somewhat decent at reading people in their, in their personalities, I would say. Uh, and uh, yeah, go ahead. No, no. You, what were you going to say? No, I, I was just going to say that. Yeah, I agree with that. And I mean, sometimes it can be hard and I, I definitely feel like with a lot of people, especially like fly anglers, I it like, it's almost hard to get to know that person. I feel like, like the pressure, especially off of them, just like goes out the window. Like whenever they, you know, see the first fish, get an eat from the fish or even land that fish. It's just like, all right, everybody can relax now. And I just feel like after that first fish, I mean, you hear the, the saying that like you get the skunk out of the boat, but it's true because like for someone that's never caught a redfish on fly before, it's a super tense moment for them. It's like game over if, you know, it doesn't go right for them. And I just feel like even if it's like a 14 inch fish, you know, to them, that's, that's awesome. And, and it is awesome that you caught your first redfish on the fly. And I feel like it just makes the trip so much better going forward after that that first fish gets landed oh my god yeah it's like you know the expression when you 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 feel like a lot of weight has been lifted off your chest or your shoulders like that's that's a very real feeling um with when you're taking someone out fishing and uh the longer it goes without that happening the more i feel like sometimes it's building i mean it's fairly stressful for sure yeah um but yeah, I'm with you. Getting that first fish in the boat, don't care what size it is, uh, is, yeah. is just a massive, everyone relaxes after that. And it's like, all right, now we, we get it. We're working together. We're going to make this happen. Yeah. It, it's, it's definitely something too, where like, so my buddy actually told me this, but he was like, think of it in, in a sense where if a client missed a shot or messed up on a shot, don't, you know, automatically blame them. Like, what could you have told them? What could you have done better to help them, like, to help them, like, get that fish? And I I just, it just made me think of, like, I've never thought that way. I've always just, like, if a client misses a shot and I thought I had it good, like, dang, all right, well, they missed a shot, just move on. But, like, why did they miss the shot? Could I have put them in a better position because I know their casting stroke does this or just something to that sense where it's just like not necessarily their fault. They're just like different than other casters, I guess. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. And I think if you think that way and you think that way often, um, you would be a, a, a very successful guy because you're never, you're never going to be blaming the client. Uh, which is, I mean, really, at the end of the day, that's that's the best thing possible. Uh, yeah, and, and you're all, and you're always willing to do the extra effort to get them 
where they need to be or in a position that they need to be once you are, if you're really paying attention to the way that they're casting and you're really paying attention to, I guess, their skill level too, you know, and just understanding that, you know, if they're going to be successful, this is how I need to position the boat or how close I need to get them to the fish, you know, so on and so forth. Do you agree with that? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, I think it's just important to just be calm with clients. And even if they did miss a 36 inch redfish at right in front of the boat, that would have eaten a tin can. Just, you know, don't, don't tell them that, but just tell them, Hey, you got the, you, you got the next fish that's coming down. There you go. There you go. Um, well, tell me a little bit about your area. Uh, you know, I've only been there once and we can, I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later cause it's kind of a funny story. Um, but how far away are you from Charleston? How, how do, I feel like, cause most people are probably familiar with the fishery of Charleston, is it different? Is it much different from that? Is what is it like? It's different in the sense that we have a larger tide swing than Charleston. You probably hear of the common king tides, um, which people in North Carolina experience all the way down to North Florida, um, where the tide, either wind driven, weather driven, or most commonly because of the moon phase, where the tides are higher than usual. In Beaufort, that number is right around like eight two eight eight point three. And that means the water level is at like eight, eight feet, three inches. Holy um, and then in Charleston, like a good flood tide is like a six, three or a six, four. Okay. Um, and that can just, it, it's a good thing in, in some senses because, you know, water's moving. You don't have to really worry about, you know, a dead flat current. But at the same time, when it's halfway between high tide and low tide, you've got a lot of current coming through. And when you have those giant tides that can reach all the way up to nine and a half foot, between high tide and low tide, there's a lot of current moving and it can definitely make it tricky to stay on fish for like the whole day. Oh, for sure. Yeah. We, we definitely have the same issue here and it is a blessing and a curse for sure. Um, and so are you fishing like, is your area, it's like a river mouth, right? Yeah. I mean, I all up and down, uh, the South Carolina coast, they have rivers. Some of them have freshwater outflows from, you know, upriver lakes and swamps. And some of them just dead end and are like more from sounds. Um, and I feel like the ones that go farther up into land are more tannic colored when, when they drain out. And then the ones that just dead end into bays are a lot clearer usually. Um, but I mean, all up and down Charleston, Georgetown, Beaufort, it's all very similar in that sense. And I mean, we have both like open flat fishing where there's, you could catch redfish, trout, flounder, all that kind of stuff on the main river, the main sounds, the main creek mouths. And then you can also go back up into the back of creeks, um, and catch redfish, trout and flounder that way as well. Got it. Um, it sounds fairly similar to here, or specifically like more our Cape Fear River area. Um, we definitely don't have we don't have the massive tide swings as bad as you guys do. But something that I s- struggle with, and I'm curious if you struggle with it too, is like we get those big negative lows, uh, which are great for like concentrating fish, uh, and then we get the mid tides, which are you know generally pretty decent for for sight fishing as well. 
But, it, man, at high tide, like, if they're not in some, like, flooded grass pockets, there's, like, only a handful of options for, at least that I know of, that are decent. Or only a handful of options for, like, sight fishing. Uh, and And that's just because they're, like, shallow areas that are shallow on high tide. Uh, because if it's if it's three feet deep, you're not you can't see the bottom. No, I I'd agree with you on that, and the, especially in the summertime, mm-hmm. if you have a morning high tide, the fish tend to be a lot more active in general in the morning and the evening, just because midday is so hot in the summer. So sometimes, even if it's not like a flooded tide, you could still find them being active on grass edges, like right at sunrise and right on sunset where even if it's not flooded grass, you still might see a tail come up. You still might see them pop shrimp or pop mullet, and that's, that can be good as well. Um, or if you're just, you know, throwing a popping court with some mud minnows. But fly fishing at a high tide, that is a non-flood tide, especially in the warmer months, can be pretty difficult um, for fly fishing just because the water is mur- typically a lot more murky in the summertime. Um, and, you know, if it's more than a foot deep, you're not really seeing bottom. You're not really seeing too much fish activity. In the wintertime, however, you, you could still get it done as long as you have high sun because the water clears up a good bit in the winter months here. Um, so, and they don't really go up into the flooded grasses in the wintertime here. So if you have those lower high tides with, you know, some good, nice sunny days, you could still target them a, for a good portion of the day, even, even if it is uh, high tide. It's just not too easy to do in the summertime when the water is murky and it's a hot midday, it just usually doesn't work out too well. Yeah, I would agree with you. We, we in the winter here, um, we get some fish in, in, like, not flood tide stuff, but just, like, longer, normal Spartina grass that's, that's flooded. Uh, but it's not super common, I wouldn't say. Uh, but it does happen. But, man, I swear, when, the, when it's wintertime and they're in that, taller grass that's it is very fishable like you can see them and it's sparse enough to where you can get a lure or a fly down into them they do not it it is so rare that they want to eat when they're in there i don't know why it is i mean i've seen both ways where if your fly lands on the grass the wrong way or if it twitches the grass the wrong way and they're 10 feet away they'll spook i've seen times where you drop it on their head they do a 180 and they smash it I, I've seen both scenarios, and I've tried to pattern it. I've tried to figure out why it happens certain times in the, in the wintertime when you can see them in three feet of water, and I just you know can't figure out why it's like a light switch for them sometimes. Yeah, I can't either. I'd love to know what <laughs> what their thought process is and why sometimes they, they'll eat in that scenario and sometimes they won't. But, like, for instance, in the fall – or, sorry – not in the fall. It, I think this was last spring, early spring. So it was still fairly cold. There were some flooded pockets. Um, again, not not like flood tide stuff, but just that high tide, sparse grass stuff. And there was almost every pocket of it of them that I could find had like ten or fifteen fish in it, and they would crush anything, absolutely anything, for like multiple days until they just kind of moved out of there but it got me thinking I, I just is it just your typical like winter spooky fish that are you know just acting funny and just not feeding or what have you I, I'm just not sure but we'll figure it out one day 
One thing I've noticed is, I mean, we'll get like, we still get king tides in the wintertime. And even though you might see a redfish slipping through like the flooded grass, like the flood tide grass, where it is like, you know, a foot deep, I'll like, and you'll see a tail come up just as them cruising. I'll notice like those fish do not want to eat when they're in that scenario, but say somewhere in that flat, there's a mud patch or like a sand patch. And if you put your fly in that sand patch and they cruise into that sand patch, they'll smash it. But if you try to drag your fly through grass, like on an actual flood tide in the wintertime, mm-hmm. they want nothing to do with it. Interesting. That's a good thing to think about. Keep in your back pocket. Yeah. that's. I mean, that's one thing I've noticed. And I've only noticed that like the last year and a half where, I mean, you don't see a whole lot of uh, redfish during flood tides in the wintertime or you actually hardly see any. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you see one cruising and you see it cruising towards, you know, an open patch, put your fly in that open patch and just leave it, wait for him. Even if it's wait, waiting five minutes for him to slowly in, inch that way, you'll, have, you'll see a lot better results. Man, I need to try that. There's, there's definitely uh, been some scenarios where there's been some open patches and that's where I, like me as the person up on the platform can see him the best. Um, so I, I, my my uh, ADD gets the best of me in those situations a lot of times. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very hard. Like what really did it for me was there's one day in particular in I think December where I took a client. It's the end of the flood season. It's like the end of the actual like king tides where they're actually good and willing to eat in the grass. And we were seeing some fish in the grass. They weren't like tailing and eating, but their tail would poke up just because they're cruising through the grass. And we probably pitched a fly out in front of 15 fish that day um, that were going through the grass. Every single one, whether he would see the fly in the grass, feel the fly, feel the line twitching on the grass, every single one of them would spook instantly, like not even an attempt to eat it. But if you would wait for them to slide off that grass onto some patch, every single fish would eat the fly. Man. All right. Noted. Yeah. Got that noted. Um, so do you do do you do much trout fishing at all? I all the trout fishing that I've done has all been taught to me. I have not learned any of that on my own. My good buddy Rob, um, him and I go scouting a good bit. He he's up in Charleston. He's probably the first dude that I fly fished with. Um, we actually started fly fishing back when I had my Carolina skiff and before he even had a like an actual fly fishing skiff. Um, and we just stayed close ever since then. Um, but we've gone up to the mountains a few times and trout fish up there. He knows a good bit of stuff. Uh, we've done some burnt trout, brown trout, rainbows, a little bit of everything. Um, and he's probably taught me everything that I know, um, which isn't much about trout fishing, but it's, it's, it's fun to go do. Um, and you know, I'll do it for two or three days, but after the third day, I'm like, all right, I want to go catch a redfish. Yeah. I'm with you. I haven't, uh, I haven't mountain trout fished in quite some time, but. It, it is something that I'd like to get back into because it's, it's a little, I mean, I mean, it's a little less stressful in my opinion, um, just from, you, you know, you're just sitting, standing in a river, don't have to, I mean, don't have the pressure of like putting someone on fish. I mean, it just purely from like, just to do for fun, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's also probably the fact that a lot of the fish that you're catching, at least like up in North Carolina, most of them aren't exceeding, you know, 10 inches. A 16-inch fish is huge. 
Yeah. Um, it's quite uncommon, and I hate nymphing. Nymphing's the most productive. I hate doing it. Every time I go up with my buddy, I refuse to do it. If I get tangled or in, in a tree, you can't put any pressure and you just snap off. So every time we go, I just throw streamers. I mean, I catch nice fish because, you know, I like to be able to feel the fly when I'm, when I'm using it. I hate, I hate nymphing. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, but I mean, I feel like if I went trout fishing somewhere, you know, out West, um, or Alaska or something where the average trout's probably a lot bigger, I'd probably enjoy it a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I haven't, I haven't, I'm sure you've been more than I have. I haven't trout fished in, you know, North Carolina that much at all. Um, most of my experiences from out West. So I think, you know, out West probably has bigger trout, but I know that there's some spots in North Carolina, they think stock fish and I'm pretty sure they get pretty big. Yeah. I mean, there, there's some big stock fish, but at least from what I've heard a stock fish doesn't fight nearly as hard as a wild fish out West, just because the fins are typically smaller. Cause I've been in a, a, a big bathtub most of their life. <laughs> and, um, you know, they haven't had the need to fight hard. So I feel like just that part of it is not, you know, as fun either. I mean, I definitely think I'd feel a difference if I went out West and, you know, actually hooked a 20 inch wild Brown compared to a 20 inch stocked rainbow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Um, speaking of stocked fish, does South Carolina, do they stock redfish? So, I have heard from a few people that in the Charleston area, they stock some redfish at some of the boat ramps. I am not aware of what size. It could be 8-inch fish. It could be 2-inch. It could be 10-inch. Uh, I really don't know. Um, I heard that Beaufort gets some, not as much as Charleston, just because Charleston brings in a lot more tax revenue. I have never seen an actual you know, DNR officer at any of the boat ramps doing it personally. I've never looked it up, but I've heard a few other captains tell me that they do stock some redfish um, throughout South Carolina. Got it. Yeah, I was, I was gonna. I was kind of curious to see if you knew anything about like when they started that, and had you seen any increase? Had you felt like there had been any increase in population of redfish? Um, so I don't know if you know anything about like when that started. Uh, and it doesn't sound like they do it much in your area anyway. So, um, I definitely feel like if they need to be stocking one thing, it should probably should be trout because the trout fishing here is terrible. Is it really? It is. I, my buddy and I talked about it a good bit. Um, whenever I referred my buddy, I mean, Rob Williams. Um, but there was a freeze that happened where it actually snowed in Charleston and Beaufort and everything. It, it snowed right around Christmas time. Like, four or five years ago, I think. It was like a whole foot of snow and it stayed for like five days. Um, and during that time, people, everyone was posting pictures in Charleston. Uh, they'd be going through creeks and just piles of dead redfish and dead trout. And there's one area in Mount Pleasant that's referred to as the shark hole. And DNR did a dive there. It's like 80 feet deep. And they did a dive there in the wintertime. And they said they saw hundreds of thousands of dead trout in the bottom of there. And prior to this event, um, when I had my kayak and my other boat, I would either idle or just troll any artificial, whether it's a rattle trap, a twitch bait, a soft plastic, anything down any grass bank um, in Charleston. And I'd get trout, even when I'm just idle, like just 
kayaking from one spot to the next or back to the dock, I'd get a handful of trout just trolling a soft plastic behind the kayak. And ever since that freeze happened, I feel like the trout took a harder hit than the redfish, or at least the trout haven't rebounded like the redfish have in that sense. Um, to where it's like if a client, you know, says they want to catch some trout, like I struggle to like actually put clients on trout if that's something that interests them. You know, we might try for two hours and where it's perfect conditions. You have clean water, you have moving water around oysters, around grass, even with live shrimp. And just sometimes it doesn't happen in an area where it's like, dang, I used to catch, you know, 50 trout here when I wanted to. And it just, it's not like that anymore. And I've talked to a few other captains and they feel the same way that they're just not catching the numbers of trout and or seeing the numbers of trout like they used to. And it, I've, everyone's been saying that since, since that snowfall that happened a few years ago. Interesting. Was this, was this the big, I feel like this might be the same snow or, or winter storm that we got. Was it like four or five years ago? Yeah, it was something right around there. I was in, I was actually in Florida when it happened and I came back to snow on the ground. We actually had to stay in Florida longer because all the highways were shut down. And then we, when we came home, we had a foot of snow in our front yard. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. I think it was 2017 or 18. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. I, I do remember. I'm sure it's the same winter storm. Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure it's 2018 because I have a picture on my phone here of a dead snook in one of the ponds uh, I used to fish in South Carolina. It was, it was like a 36-inch dead snook from wait, the snow. A snook in South Carolina in a South Carolina pond? Yeah, we've, we've got snook and tarpon in ponds here. Um, I have an unofficial record with DNR for one of the largest snook caught in South Carolina. <laughs> I had no idea. I mean, I, I, I mean, knew it, that there was some some small tarpon and stuff in, in I don't know where. I, know, I knew that people caught them in South Carolina in, like, drainages and stuff. I had no idea that there was snook as well. That's interesting. I've caught um, a few baby snook in the casting net, too, like in inlets and stuff when netting mullet um, and shrimp. I would, like, throw my net out. And I think this happened to me, I think, three times. Twice in Charleston and once here in Beaufort where I'd throw my casting net, get a bunch of mullet, and then there'd be like a six or seven inch snook, snook in the casting net as well. And it, it wasn't one of those like sand perch that have that white stripe it was, yeah. or a black stripe. It was an actual snook. That's crazy. That is really wild. How many, uh, what's, you said you had the unofficial record for biggest snook. Yeah. How big was it? So I didn't actually have a tape measure with me when I measured it. Looking back at the picture now, it looks more like 36, 37, but I just said it was 32. Um, you know, just so someone that had, at the time, more fishing knowledge than me, they wouldn't call BS on it. But looking back at the picture now, it's definitely like 36, 37. It's, it's oh down on my gosh. Instagram. If you scroll down on my Instagram like five or six years ago, you'll see it. It's a picture of me. I have the background blurred out. Um, but it's me holding a giant snook um, next to a pond. That's pretty wild. Did you catch it on a fly rod or did you catch it on uh, spinning gear? It was on spinning gear. Um, I actually had no idea there was snook in this pond. I was just fishing for black drum with uh, just some live shrimp in this pond. And I threw, I threw my line out there. 
just with a live shrimp free lining it, and then I got smacked, and then the thing came up and jumped. I only had twenty pound. I I only had twenty pound leader fluorocarbon leader with a one op hook. Don't quite know how I landed that snook with that light of leader. Um, it's it's crazy because you know their mouths are very abrasive. I've lost plenty of sixteen inch, inch snook on forty pound uh, uh, leader when I fish in Florida. Somehow I was lucky enough to land that big one only on twenty pound. Wow, wow, that's crazy. I had no idea. I had no idea. I'm gonna have to go look at that picture. But going back, going back to the speckled trout thing, real quick. I'm I'm interested why, like, it, a large portion of speckled trout are migratory, and uh, like for instance, a lot of the fish that we catch in North Carolina um, that are tagged. Sometimes they come from like all the way in like northern Chesapeake Bay area. So you I'm have northern or you you have tagged trout. Yeah, we have tagged trout. Yeah, I've n- I've never caught a tagged trout before. I've caught a few tagged redfish, never caught a tagged trout. I didn't even know that they tagged trout when I when I talked to one of the DNR people, which I I don't know what it's called for you guys, but it's the Department of Natural Resources. They were going out one of the boat ramps here with just a giant gill net. And I was like, what are y'all doing? They're like, we're just, uh, you know, trying to net up some fish um, and just get a, like a population survey and tag some fish. And I said, oh, you guys are tagging the trout too? And they said, no, the trout are too fragile, so we don't tag them. And that's the response that I got when I, I talked to them, at least here in South Carolina. I think it depends on, it depends on uh, water temperature. So mm-hmm. if, it's, if it's like really hot, then they don't want you tagging. Um, I mean, it, it was, it was, it was November when we were, when uh, I spoke with them. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I guess. So, I mean, it, it's like the, the ideal water temp. <laughs> ours is, uh, so ours is marine fisheries. Um, and I'm not sure why they think that, what the difference is, um, or what the disconnect is, but long story short, you know, the trout are migratory for the most part. There's definitely residential trout. I'm curious if maybe like there's there is a different group of migratory trout that maybe migrate from South Carolina to Georgia and what what have you because I feel like our trout kind of bounced back a decent amount after that big freeze because we got we got hit with that too you know so I'm I'm just kind of thinking out loud I wish I knew I wish I knew why the population hasn't come back in your areas. I guess. I mean, it could also be, it could also be like if you say that there's a residential population and uh, migratory, maybe the ones that we're catching now are just the migratory ones and then all the residential ones died. And then the reason they haven't been able to make a comeback is just because South Carolina has had such a boom in population. There's been a lot more people on the water. And even if you aren't like keeping trout, they're typically pretty fragile. Um, Like their slime is important to them and all that stuff. So like just, you know, simply just dropping a trout probably means, you know, not going to survive compared to dropping a redfish. Not the best thing in the world, but um, it's definitely a lot worse with the trout. So I feel like just the increase of fishing pressure, um, even, I mean, Charleston has like tripled in size since he moved there, even quadrupled. But even Beaufort's grown a lot in the last 10 years too. So it could just be the like the significant impre- in, increase in fishing pressure. And since mm-hmm. trout are already pr- pretty fragile to handle in general, 
I mean, that, that could be it. Yeah, they are fragile. They are indeed. I think uh, I was at a marine fisheries meeting, gosh, I don't know, about two months ago. And uh, on the recreational side, they are guessing, or I guess guessing is not the right word, but they're estimating that 25% of the trout that are caught and released, 25% of those fish die. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that's true, especially, um, I mean, even if people catch under undersized trout, I mean, I'll see pictures on Facebook of an undersized trout just laying on the deck of someone's boat, and they're, like, caught this one and released safely, and I know, like, if that fish was on their deck and, you know, 13 inches, it's sitting on their deck for how, God knows how long, you know, that thing's probably not going to make it just because of how fragile they already are. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. So, I, you know, I guess if anything, if you're planning on, catching and releasing trout just probably good to you know handle like none if any just you know stick the pliers get the hook out keep the fish in the net keep the fish in the water and just let them go there you go like it well there is another species i want to talk to you about in your area (laughs) which is cobia um you know me and my buddy jeff (laughs) this must have been gosh, five years ago, six years ago, maybe had heard about your area and that, uh, a certain time of year, a lot of cobia show up in that, in that spot and that we could essentially fish for them from our skiff. And we were like, Oh my God, this sounds like the best thing ever. We got to do this. And so we went when we thought was the right time, which I think it was spring you know, early spring maybe. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we stayed, we, we fished for two full days. The weather was absolutely perfect, like high sun, no clouds, no wind. And so we could essentially go from the ramp right near the bridge all the way out to the to the mouth and to the ocean and back with like no problem at all. Um, and we never, we didn't see a cobia the whole time, but I know that they're there. I know that they come there certain times a year. So what's what's been your experience with cobia in that area and uh, and and fishing for them? So in this last year, I've actually learned a lot about cobia. I've learned that they actually do not exist. Um, <laughs> that they're they actually don't exist in shore. Spent lots of days looking for them. There was even a tournament. Um, there was an invitational tournament with thirty five boats. Uh, called the Cobia Fly Invitational. And out of 35 boats over two days of fishing, only two Cobia were landed. Uh, I got thir- we got third place by default because in the rule book it said if no Cobia are caught, the largest saltwater species wins. So after day one, we're like, we saw that only two Cobia were caught. Like, hey, we spent the first four hours on day two looking for Cobia, and then we just abandoned that altogether and went red fishing and entered, entered a red fish into the Cobia tournament just for the picture. And uh, got third place that way. But, I mean, we spent a lot of time, put a lot of hours on our motor just looking for those cobia. And for how much, I, for, at least for me, for how much wear and tear I put on my boat just idling up and down, I don't think it's worth it. We spent, in, in the two days, we probably spent 14, 15 hours idling up and down. And at least us, we didn't see a single cobia um, fishing during that time. 
And I mean, I fished for them before and after that tournament. And I maybe would see, you know, one or two after four hours of idling up and down. And I wasn't here for, I haven't been here for that long. I hear a lot of the older people talk about, and even just the like guys that have been here for a lot longer, the Cobia fishing used to be so much better. You used to be able to go out fly fishing and it'd be, you know, a normal day for you to catch two Cobia every single time the conditions were right. And it wasn't unheard of to catch four or five. And I just, you know, haven't heard of that ever happening since I've been here. And I've, you know, definitely not seen enough Cobia for that to even be possible. People definitely catch on bait fishing, both inshore and offshore, just with menhaden or mullet or whatnot. But I just feel that the numbers just aren't here anymore, at least just from what I've seen, even through social media, through word of mouth. And it's the biggest joke between my buddy and I that Cobia don't exist, that it's all a scheme to get you to spend money on the tournament when they don't exist. <laughs> how, how long is this tournament being, being held? Um, it is, it takes place in May. Um, and it's, it's a two day tournament all day. I, I think this tournament specifically has either been going for two or three years. I could be wrong, but I know there's been a, like, there's a Cobia tournament every year that's held, um, by bait fishermen and stuff like that. And I don't think they put up large numbers anymore either. And I mean, I see pictures of people used to catch, you know, 50, 60 inch Cobia um, on a daily basis. And now, you know, I feel like even the experienced captains are lucky to catch one, one Cobia of any size, even if it's, you know, 32 inches. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I feel like with everything, it's just, like you know, the increase of fishing pressure. I mean, I mean, the way you target. Yeah, I hear you. Okay, sorry. I mean, I feel like with everything else, it's just an increase of fishing pressure, a lot more boat traffic. And I mean, the way you're going to fish for these cobias, you're looking for them. And if people are, you know, driving their boats up and down the whole time, the fish are not going to want to come up. Um, not going to want to ride up high. Yeah, I don't. It's interesting. Do you get to go offshore that much and do any cobia fishing? I, I say every year I'm going to do that, and I feel like on the super nice days where it's nice enough for me to go out, I have an elderly gentleman on my boat that has very bad balance, and we end up just staying inshore fishing when that would be primed to go look for them on the reef. But I know on the reef um, you could chum them up and that kind of stuff with menhaden, with you know just bait balls. Um, but I, again, I feel like it's one of those things where it's, the numbers just aren't like they used to. At least, I mean, I don't, you know, I haven't been doing it for that long to tell you from my personal experience, but just listening to other captains that have been doing it and then other old timers that are like, back in my day, we used to catch eight cobia in the broad river. I just don't feel like anyone does that at all, like at all anymore. Hmm. Well, I hope it picks back up because that's, that's a, in my mind, that seems like such a special place to catch a cobia because it's probably one of the only places I can think of that's like similar to Florida where you can catch them like, you know, from standing on a sandbar. Yeah. And even one of my buddies that fishes the East coast of Florida, he was telling me like five years ago, every, I think, I don't remember what season, but every year you'd be able to sight fish cobia while walking on the beach just with bucktail jig you'd see that like a big you know lemon or bull shark come in and it had two or three kobe on them and he said that just doesn't happen anymore he's gone like three three years straight and he'd walk the beach the right time of year the right water temp the right moon 
and he just doesn't see any cobia along the beach anymore, at least where he is. Hmm. Well, hopefully it gets better. That's all I got to say. Do you um do do do, do you get a push of big bull reds up the river? Yeah, we do. Um, it's really good in the fall, September, October. Um, you, you get them stacked up pretty good around the inlets, around structure, that kind of stuff. Um, just whenever the water temp is not, you know, 90 degrees and whenever it's not like 50 or 16 below, um, you know, right when it's that good 60 to 75 range is when the bull red fishing is good. Um, I, I definitely feel like um, it's very on and off with that fishing. You might go to one spot one day and you might catch seven or eight with, with bait, just dropping it to the bottom. And then you try that spot three more times in the same week or the next, you know, identical tide cycle and you don't catch them. So I definitely feel like they move around a lot more than people think. And I mean, even with the tagging program that happens, I've caught a few bulls whether it's from the beach with, you know, just chunking mullet off the beach or even in the inlets that had tags in them. I've had one that was tagged um, in Virginia and I've caught one here in Beaufort that was tagged down in uh, South, Southeast Florida. Wow. Yeah. They can move. I I mean, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. They are mobile. Um, Are they ever, do they ever present themselves in a way that you can sight fish them? Or is it mainly chunk and bait? I mean, you might get an occasional one that just happens to be in the area where you know a group of redfish hangs out, where it goes up shallow just with the other redfish. And, I mean, they're not a true bull where it's like a 45-inch redfish cruising up and tailing. You don't really see that here. But you do occasionally see like a 36, a 38-inch fish um, just with other redfish cruising around. it's not, you know, completely uncommon for that to be in the mix, but I mean, you know, you can't go out there and expect to catch one, you know, over 35 every day. It just, it's not realistic. You don't really, you, you can't be like, Hey, I want to go fly fish for some bull redfish today. It, it doesn't really, right. it, it doesn't, doesn't really work that way here. Yeah. It's not, re- it's not, re- not really a thing in South Carolina. It doesn't really work that way in Wilmington here where I live, but it definitely, it can work that way up in the, Outer Banks and North and uh, the Chesapeake and whatnot. Um, speaking of bull redfish, I know that you just went to uh, Louisiana. How did that go? It was a lot of fun. It makes me uh, appreciate um, how good redfishing can be with lo- a little pressure and just lots of square miles of fishing. Mm-hmm. I, I come back here whenever I go down there and then come back. I'm like, dang, I we really don't have that good of fishing or it it could be a lot better. Um, I mean, I don't feel like it's one of those things where, you know, if we did like, you could keep zero redfish any time of the year. I mean, I don't think that would solve the problem just because of the fishing pressure, the square miles. I just don't feel like the big fish want to push up super shallow when you have these large tide swings. I feel like a lot of the reason Louisiana is good for the big fish is because they have little tide swings, little boat traffic, in comparison to how much like square miles of coastline and marshland they have. So it's definitely a new experience going down there. I I love it. Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty special place, but I will say 
even there, you can have tough days. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. The, the time that we went down there is after the cold front that the whole East Coast just got. Um, we went down there, I think it was like three weeks ago, and they had a bunch of days where the highs were like 27 degrees down in Louisiana. And we got there, and day one when we started fishing, water temp was like 47 or 48 degrees. And we we would see some fish moving. And it was one of those things where we'd have to hit them in the face with the fly and just, like, inch that fly. If you thought you were working the fly slow, work it slower. And you had to, like, force feed it into their mouth for them to eat the fly. Like they, w- they would not commit to anything that, you know, a regular big redfish would eat. It had to be small, super slow and heavy, just inching its way on the bottom. And it, it was just frustrating to like, and like the fish weren't, they didn't want to get a shallow. So if you were in dirty water, you weren't seeing anything. That's uh, that sounds challenging, but at least you're catching big fish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. Every, every fish that we caught there, even like a 27 inch redfish here might be 10 pounds or whatever it is. And then at any fish that you catch down there, just add five pounds, five to 10 pounds to what it would be if you caught it up here. Yeah. Yeah. They're all, they're all just like footballs. They really are. It's like a, they're like a different species. I'll argue with anyone who wants to argue with me about that. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't even think they have the same genetics at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, like c- compared to East coast redfish. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I agree with you. Um, Man, I think I I feel like we've covered most of uh, most everything that I wanted to cover. Was there anything that you wanted to add before we close here? Um, no, I mean I, I think that's everything. Well, man, I I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on and and uh, talking, giving us some knowledge on redfish and and your fishery and telling us about some massive snook that you're catching in some secret lake somewhere <laughs> in South Carolina. Um, that's so cool by the way. Uh, but I, I, I do appreciate you coming on and, and taking the time, but if someone wanted to reach out to you and either book a trip or follow you on social media, how do they find you? So on Facebook and Instagram, um, it's both Southern underscore style underscore charters. And you can look it up on Google too, or look up uh, Beaufort Fly Fishing, uh, both of which are valid. Um, I've got two different websites, um, and there's a few different forms of uh, social media as well with different usernames just to cover all bases. But Southern Style Charters is the main one that I use. Love the name. Um, are, you, are Do you also own Southern Style Flies? Southern Style Flies? Yes. That was my old Instagram account name okay. uh, before, I, before I started guiding. There's actually a new person that I think took that name. I saw a post on Microsoft about it. He called himself Southern Style Flies, and he's selling flies now, which I thought was pretty cool. I mean, I didn't you know, think anything bad of it. I just thought it was cool that someone else liked that name after I was done using it because I don't really advertise that I sell flies a whole lot. I mean, if someone was to message me, you know, you want some flies or some shops do, um, but you know, the stuff that I really advertise that I do anymore. So I just thought it was cool. Someone else liked the name and took it over. So yeah. hopefully they make good flies that catch good fish. Yeah. I mean, the flies look, <laughs> look really nice. So I wasn't sure if it was, if it was you, 
running that as well. But no, I haven't even looked them up on Instagram. If, if that's where they are, I've only I saw that they made a post on another website about it, but I have not seen them if they're on Instagram. So I, that's, I'll have to look into that myself. Yeah. Well, Zach. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, I just looked them up, and yeah, I see them. Well, I see the account you're talking about. It's all like mo- mostly redfish style flies. Definitely. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, extra marketing for you. Um, yeah, I guess so. Thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. We'll, we'll do it again, and uh, hopefully I can get down there and fish with you at some point. Yeah, man, of course. It was a pleasure being on the show, and I uh, look forward to uh, if you ever make your way down here. Will do. We'll stay in touch. Good talking to you. All right. Sounds good. Yeah.